Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv and I'm joined here today by Han, founder and CEO of Portico Labs. So Han, can we start off by an elevator pitch from yourself about what Portico Labs does? Sure, so um, Portico Labs is a um, deep tech company that builds biological computers. The way we do biological computing is by growing uh, stem cell derived neurons onto silicon chips having them interface with the neurons and then training them to perform intelligence or computational tasks. Can you give us an example of a computational task that these neurons yep. can do? Sure, so um, this came out um, sometime I think in October last year, 2022, yeah. where um, we published findings from our work that showed that you could get these neurons to learn how to play the video game Pong. Now, mm. that's your classic AI reinforcement learning control systems uh, application. And uh, it was also our go-to for our first uh, you know, technical demo. And I think it was a, a massive success that we were able to prove that these neurons could do something. Well, reinforcement learning is something we can do like via software and neural nets. Mm. What's a type of learning that isn't possible right now with um, software that you can do with wetware? So it's, um, it's hard to say at the moment. Uh, there are things that we think these wetware systems are particularly really good at. Um, firstly, we, think, we know for a fact now that they are far more sampler efficient than reinforcement learning mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that um, if we say, take a camera, uh, for yeah. instance, and it's you know, sampling the world at 60 frames per second. Yeah. Um, in that second, you have about 60 frames of information. Um, reinforcement learnings through artificial neural nets are very sample hungry. Mm. In the sense that in order to get a significant amount of uh, training output, you need to feed lots of examples, lots of samples. Now, um, in a time-constrained world that we have, mm. and we're sampling at you know, a fixed rate of 60 frames per second, you don't have that luxury um, in, in order to, to get enough information, process it, and make the decision. We've seen that these biological systems uh, outperform RL systems uh, when they're constrained to the same amount of sample data given. Yeah. So that's one of the, one of the things that it's probably better at. The other one is the, the energy efficiency required. So yeah. um, let's say your typical deep neural net, uh, even in an RL setting, will require several large um, a GPU clusters, right? And each GPU would take about 250 watts of energy. Now, that is a significant amount of energy compared to the neurons that we've trained them to do this, this task. Uh, so for reference, we think that 800,000 to a million neurons is consuming about uh, 10 to the minus four, minus five. So in the microwatts range of energy, comparatively to the 250 watts required by a single GPU instance. Let alone yeah. the fact that now we're starting to cobble them together into you know, clusters of GPUs. So there's that sample efficiency and the, t um, the energy efficiency that we know these systems are, are better at. Um, we also think that because of the way that these systems learn where there is no training and inference and training is part of inference, that what do you mean there's no training and inference so in a sense that when we when we train to play the game of pong what happens is that there there is a uh, a gameplay happens information yeah. is fed into the system they make a decision about where to push the pedal up and down and then there's a continuous reward and punishment system in yeah. the sense that if let's say the ball hits the pedal we reward it the game continues um and if they miss it you know we, we punish them and it, it continues again so as it's performing the task it's learning, it's improving. There is no you know, uh, particular training phase you know, then going on to a, an inference phase. Training is inference. And if you think about it, it's a lot more natural. That's how we learn. Mm. For instance, if you learn how to ride a bicycle, um, you're not doing um, yeah. sort of a training phase and failing in lots of you know, ways and then only learning how to, to ride a bike. You're, you're, you're correcting yourself each time you fall, adjusting, readjusting to the point where you just naturally learn how to balance with momentum. Yeah, so I, I guess now with the advent of GPT, AI and training, a new type of company we see um, you know, raising a lot of money are companies that generate training data. And so do you see a world where we basically create these like cortical chips 
um, and they would supplement, um, you know, the training data required essentially because less training data is needed to train a model. I think you know the these cortical neurons, these brain chips. Um, Ultimately, the ideal scenario or, or setting for them to be used in is in the real world, where um, you actually have streaming real-time information yeah. and, and the actuation on that environment. Um, and this is the reason why I think reinforcement learning is still a very important toolkit in machine mm. learning, um, not to, and not to be sidetracked by large language models or generative AI, yeah. because a lot of the synthetic information that's being generated is essentially being, um, how do I describe it, uh, tapped into based on the corpus of, say, language that we have on, on the internet, right? Yeah. Um, whereas if you think about where AI needs to go, it needs to actually break, three, break free of your digital realm and into the analog yeah. realm. Because if you think about where what, what jobs or what things are going to be displaced by things like ChatGPT, it's going mm. to be mostly the white collar jobs, you know, the, the, um, the service industry. Mm. Um, blue collar work, you know, the manual labor is still pretty safe because language models don't have very good effects in the real world. Um, so I think the, the ideal setting to get back to your point again is that these systems um, would be ideally put in the real world with real sense of information being fed in and real actions being done out. Is that sort of like auto GPT, uh, where yeah. you set like the overall goal and then the system kind of prompts itself? I mean, the thing about it is that in auto GPT or any GPT system, you're still constrained by A, language mm. and B, output, right? So for instance, in auto GPT or any GPT system that, that has yeah. to actuate on the world, or produce an output, you're constrained by tokens. Yeah. Right? So for instance, if let's say there was no token for something that was a cross between a tiger and a lion, yeah. like a ligon or a tigon. Was it tigon or, uh, or a liar or whatever, one of those things, those hybrid stuff. Um, liger. Liger, that's the one. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you didn't have a token for that, that machine couldn't express itself. Mm. It could try to say the hybrid between a tiger and a, and a a lion, um, but it, it wouldn't be able to do that. And this is the problem with digital systems. They are yeah. discrete, right? They're discrete pieces of information. Whereas the world we know and experience is purely analog, right? We don't have discretization of, yeah. of information. Everything is a waveform that is continuous. And I think, you know, that, that is the reason why, um, you know, the, 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 the biological systems that we're using have that very interesting property because they are actually still analog in the way they process information. As in they can pick up the 10% almost Potentially. that isn't, isn't being picked up right now. Correct. Or, yeah. or maybe it's also being able to use that sort of noisy data stream yeah. that comes in. Yeah, because if you think about it, like, and this is a problem that we, we face a lot internally when we build our systems, mm. um, bridging this analog to the digital realm. Um, yeah. Questions arise like what, what sampling rate should we be using to gather information, right? Because uh, as yeah. you know, the more samples you have, the smoother your curve gets. But yeah. you, know, uh, you may not need that much sampling if your curve never goes beyond you know, mm. double the expected frequency range. That's part of Nyquist's theorem. So you know, th this is, I think, one of the big challenges, which is reconciling the fact that the, the world is an analog thing, yeah. but all our computation is happening in a digital world. How do we break that barrier between digital and analog, I think, is, is going to be really important. I still don't really understand how this can complement our existing software systems today. Mm. So to give you an example, let's say the property of uh, uh, sample efficiency, right? Yeah. Sample efficiency is actually particularly really useful for things like cybersecurity defense. Yeah. Um, to give you an example for that. So in a, you know, there are usually two arms of your cybersecurity. One, which is your typical uh, data, your data hygiene, your security yeah. hygiene. So don't you reuse passwords, don't click on, you know, suspicious phishing yeah. links and so forth. These are the, the known threats. 
The bigger problem is the unknown threats,、mm. things like your zero-day exploits. And zero-day exploits are essentially creative, novel ways of attacking a network system. Yeah.、Um, that haven't been, you know, thought about. Now, AI systems or machine learning-based systems、yeah. learn through lots of examples. Now, it is something that they've never seen beforehand, and it's attacking the system. They need to collect information about this、mm. before it can make a decision. Now, time is of the essence when you have a system like、uh, cybersecurity defense. So、um, you need to collect as minimal amount of information that you need to make a decision to neutralize the threat to save your network. This、yeah. is something that we see、um, that these biological systems may potentially be good at. Yeah. Because of the fact that they are very sample efficient,、um, as per the poster in NIPS and also the paper that's going to be coming out soon.、Um, so that's one example. Another one that is、uh, of, of interest as well、um, is the fact that these systems are analog, and、yeah. actually exhibit some random property, some random property in its in its firing、um, patterns. Now, why this is important is that computing systems are actually deterministic. Yeah. So your random number generator isn't actually really random, and so、mm. uh, companies like Cloudflare, you know, they use. Walls of lava、yeah. lamps to create enough entropy to create unique uh, encryption uh, hashes. So,、yeah. using these neurons, you could theoretically also use them to create these random, truly random hashes. Yeah. So, you know, it's a platform. It's a it's a new tool that we we think we're developing,、um, and all the applications may not be necessarily obvious to us today, but for people in different fields, it actually might be. So my background actually is in medicine. Yeah. So I have a particular bias towards the drug discovery,、um, yeah. personalized medicine angle of of、uh, this technology. Interesting. I I think the cybersecurity example is very interesting. I think that it can be so widely cross applicable when、mm. we talk about like. The unknown threats.、Um, that is like the five to ten percent that is never covered, right, by AI. Correct. Because when we even talk about like autonomous driving and、yep. why people are a little bit hesitant、mm. to, you know, just allow cars to drive autonomously,、yep. it's the the edge cases. Correct. It's the when it rains and、yep. it can't see clearly. And you know, a dog jumps across、yep. the street,、yes. and all of these things happen.、Yep. Like humans、yep. can again pick up the signal and learn on the spot, infer、yeah. and decide. Yes.、Uh, without data backing that, an、yep. AI system would not be able to. Hundred percent. So、yeah. the idea, I guess, is that this cortical chip, this brain chip,、yes. would be able to supplement that five to ten percent.、Mm. Um, And be able to respond to the unknown threat and and engage with the current software systems we have to create something、yes. that covers. Yes. Hundred percent. We don't purport to actually replace silicon. We、yeah. think we're in addition to silicon.、Mm. Just as quantum isn't going to replace silicon. In fact, we're really, really far away from any of that. Yeah.、Um, you know, the the whole talk of quantum supremacy and so forth、yeah. is still a very long way away. However, there are some things that quantum are really good at. For instance, Shor's algorithm, for、mm. that matter, right? So,、um, I think this is moving into the space of where a lot of people have started to think about what is the post-silicon world going to look like. Yeah. This lends itself to this theory of heterogeneous compute, right? Yeah. So, what is the post-silicon world going to look like?、Mm. Um, because we know for a fact that you can't keep shrinking these transistors, right? We're going to、yeah. get to the end of Moore's law,、um, but we still have a lot of other. Um, spaces、mm. to to cover, right? You know, it's the whole P equals MP, you know, or is P equals MP? I, I I personally don't think it is, but somebody can win several million dollars by proving that.、Yeah. Now the issue is there are a whole host of other computational problems in the NP hard space, machine learning and AI systems, and to a certain degree how we do it in our heads actually bypasses the NP hard problem by using heuristics. Yeah. Right. So so explain. So. To give you an example,、mm-hmm. say AlphaGo, yeah, right. How AlphaGo works is is actually really interesting because, as we all know, you can't actually play to the end game for any Go game because of the number of permutations and combinatorials, yeah.、Right? Um, so what OpenAI, sorry, what DeepMind did 
with uh, AlphaGo was they played the game, right, using your traditional rollout techniques, mm -hmm. um, but they also train a, a reinforcement-based artificial neural network to observe the gameplay, to build heuristics, yeah. to the point where they, they didn't need to unroll all the way to the end game, but just good enough, right, that the neural net was learning the patterns involved in the gameplay of, of Go. Um, mm. And so that was how AlphaGo was able to, to beat Lee Seidel, the best human player, um, without having to compute all the way to the end game, which is what Deep Blue did with, uh, with chess. So to, to further that point, we do this all the, the time as well in our heads, mm. um, right? If you think about, so this is going into, you know, theories like, you know, the, the free energy principle and so forth, which is what... Uh, we, we think these biological systems are, are, are using to, to sort of compute, which is that if let's say there are phenomena in the world, such as gravity, why would you waste energy to compute that phenomena if you know that it already exists and it affects everything? So in many cases, you can, you can learn the heuristics of that and use that to bypass that computation. So you mm -hmm. don't have to search the entire np hard space uh, and compute all the way to the end, end game, so to speak. So that's, we, we think, the reason why biological brains, biological systems are so energy efficient. Because we've learned heuristics, we take shortcuts yeah. uh, to try to get to just, it doesn't have to be perfect, but good enough to survive. Interesting. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, just to summarize, what you're saying is that humans essentially hack things, right? We yes. hack systems, yep. um, we take shortcuts, yes. and at the moment, um, given, given how um, probabilistic computers operate, yep. um, they don't do the same thing. They Correct. don't take shortcuts. They don't hack the system. Yep. And so um, in order to kind of get the same uh, learning patterns mm. as the human brain functions in, we'd have to put in cortical neurons essentially we think so or until yeah. we figure out why they are so good at doing these things right? yeah so why are they so good at doing these things that's the trillion quadrillion oh, really? dollar question right you know like what's what's your inkling so my, my i don't know i mean i i think i know i i, I have a we, we have an understanding of why biological systems are good at doing this right yeah which is which is essentially evolution natural selection mm. right you you know two main criteria that you need for this thing to occur, which is one, you need to select for energy efficiency, right? Because if you think yeah. about it, um, you can't consume more than you, than you can forage or that you can hunt. Yeah. So biological systems have very high efficiency because of that. Um, and secondarily, that, that sample efficiency I talk about, you have to have that because if you don't, um, if you don't have that speed, then either A, if you're a predator, you lose your prey, or mm. if you're a prey, you become food, right? Um, and so these are the two selection criteria for that. I'm not so sure how we translate that into, into computing systems, but perhaps it's a new formulation. Yeah. And there are a lot of people actually out there working on alternatives to deep neural nets and backpropagation, right? Because yeah. we, we particularly don't think, I think it's now a consensus now that backpropagation isn't happening in the brain, and, and Jeff Hinton has been working on things like feet so forward, forward networks and, mm. and so forth. Um, but I think it does require a significant change in mindset to get to that level of, um, uh, say, computation or intelligence that the biological systems are getting. Interesting. And have you done studies so far combining uh, your brain chips with, I don't know, M1 chips, for example? So we have done some work mm. uh, using neuromorphic systems. Yeah. So now neuromorphic systems, please explain. So neuromorphic systems are uh, essentially spiking neural nets. Yeah. Um, where your computer memory are carrying the same point in time. And rather than processing everything in one go, you're only processing events. Um, I'll give you an example, like an event-based camera, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's very much like a spiking neural network because if an event-based camera um, so let's take a step back. In your traditional camera, if you point it at a white screen, it's capturing 1920 by 1080 pixels um, at 30 frames per second. So each of that, you're, you're generating data. Now, we don't 
do that in our in our brains, right? Yeah. For instance, Hubert and Weasel with the whole uh, contrasting thing. If you just saw a white wall and there was no movement, no contrast, your brain isn't computing any of that stuff because it's wasting mm. energy. Uh, so a neuromorphic system does that similarly as well. And there are uh, computing hardware developed by people like Intel, like yeah. Loihi chips and so forth that are spiking in nature. Yeah. And so we're looking at that as a way of saying, how do we combine what, what is really good, right? Say artificial neural networks, deep learning nets, right? Um, with these biological systems. And the way you have to try to think about it is that your deep neural nets, what is the input and what is the output? Mm. These are, <laughs> ma are matrix-based uh, systems or tensors. Now, a neuron has no idea what a matrix or a tensor is. Yeah. They speak in spike trains, action potential yeah. spike trains. So we think that spiking neural networks and neuromorphic systems is the perfect way of actually combining these two because they will take uh, matrices and tensors and if you train them correctly, will output spike, spike train outputs. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So be able to uh, utilize the power of deep neural nets, but um, utilize the efficiency of the human brain in detecting only the things that change. Correct. Because you see, there's, there's always this trade-off, right? Like of, of um, yeah. how perfect do you want it and how uh, much do you want to spend computing it, right? Mm. So for instance, the human brain is also not, it's, it's not infallible if you think about it, right? Yeah. We, we, we fall, trick, we, we fall uh, into a lot of optical illusion tricks. Um, we surprise ourselves when, you know, the dress is either blue or, or gold or whatever, right? Yeah. And it's because of these shortcuts that we have in our, in our heads that's why we, we, we have all these optical illusions that occur. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it's, it's really depending on the, the task that you're trying to solve. You know, do you need yeah. something that computes really quickly with least amount of energy that's just good enough? Or do you really need an absolutely accurate, like, answer? Yeah, and I, I think we touched on this before. Uh, but the idea that we can harness different brains and yes. we talked about evolution right mm. so um different like ethnic groups and people are essentially evolve differently um yeah. and we can utilize the power of different skill sets in building brain chips that perform functions we want i mean there have been twin studies mm. that show that there are preferences that are shared between twin siblings that are separated at birth Okay. Right? And, and, you know, they're separated at birth, they have different epigenetic factors and so forth, but they mm. still share preferences. Preferences, what do you mean? For instance, you know, both liking vanilla ice cream, even though mm. they've never seen each other and they live in completely different parts of the country, Interesting. different families and so forth, yeah. right? Da tastes and, and, and preferences. So these things, we've seen it with twin studies. The question then becomes, because of the fact that we can actually grow stem cells taken from, from adults, into into neurons do these neurons also share genetic preferences interesting as yeah um and you know we're going now into the realm of speculation and yeah. sci-fi but it's not beyond the realms of possibility mm. that this could be the case that's cool um i mean so this is not your first startup no. um i'd love to dive into what led you to build this company so um, this was about, I think, the 2016 period. Um, I, uh, I, I was the founder of a previous startup uh, called Clinic Cloud, and I was the CTO mm -hmm. of that. Um, this was a startup that I had started in my second year residency, um, and um, it was a digital stethoscope and a non-contact Bluetooth thermometer that you could yeah. um, connect via smartphone to the cloud for remote diagnosis. and some early forms of automated diagnostics. This was, I guess, kind of groundbreaking in 2014. It's kind of obvious today with post-COVID and, and so forth. But medtech wasn't a thing. And it was really, really hard to, to try to figure out how to couple the, the product to the market. There was no mm. product market fit. <clears throat> and uh, what was particularly uh, um, difficult was the fact that in 2016, it was an election year. Mm. And, uh, you know, we, we tried various models. We tried a B2C, B2B, mm. but they weren't big enough for us to, to really scale the process. So we put all our eggs in one basket. We said, let's do the B2E uh, 
pathway uh, by partnering with a subsidiary from Intel that currently no longer exists as well to sell these devices into the VA. Now, a deal had been done, but we couldn't get the funds through because of yeah. regime change. And this was okay. particularly uh, noted in 2016 when, when um, Trump came into power and, uh, uh, you know, one of his pledges was to tear Obamacare. Oh, gosh. And so yeah. organizations like the VA and all the other HMOs, you know, were a little bit wary of spending the discretionary expenditure funds that they had. So mm. we were waiting and waiting for several, quite a few months, actually, because we, we thought that, sure, he was going to get Obama, uh, Obamacare out, Trump care will come in and everything will be fine. But there was a lot of to and fro and nothing really happened for quite mm. a few months um, uh, in 2017 to the point where we were literally just burning cash and not doing, mm. making any progress. So I closed down that business in 2018 and I was looking for something to do. 2017-2018 was, I, I would say, the first AI hype curve. And this was you know, yeah. the advent of the convolutional neural network. So yeah. you know, if you've ever watched Silicon Valley, that was the hot dog or not like moment. <laughs> now, um, my co-founder and I, Andy, didn't want to do another convolutional neural net for X problem because mm. uh, you're only as good as the training data that you had. Mm. And you were literally just auditioning for um, the big tech firms to squash you once you've proven the concept. Oh, gosh. And yeah. so we went back and we did some literature review and came across a paper that Demis Hassabis, the founder of DeepMind, had written in 2017. Yeah. Uh, it, it was published in Neuron where he called for machine learning and artificial intelligence researchers to re-engage with the neuroscience community because mm. that was where all the initial progress had been made. Yeah. Um, and so I did exactly that. I um, contacted the neuroscience department at the University of Melbourne um, and, you know, had a chat with them and said, hey, what's exciting in your world? And they told me of this new device, or relatively new device, called the multi-electrode array that allowed researchers in their field uh, in electrophysiology to read the electrical <gasps> signals from the, from the neurons and to provide a voltage stimulus back. Yeah. So when I heard about that, I was like, you now have a read and write interface, an input-output into a substrate that is the basis of the, the organic brain, the you know, most powerful yeah. computer that we have. And I thought, why hasn't anyone built a biological computer yet? Right? You have input-output, all you need is a processor, and we yeah. really have one. So that's how I ended up going down this very naive path of how hard could it be to build a biological computer, and we're still here four years later, Still trying to solve it. We're one step closer, but I think quite a few steps away from actually solving it. Um, you mentioned that your background was in healthcare. Now you were looking at building a biological computer. Um, and we touched on a lot of interesting topics on how a biological computer, the wetware, can complement um, the current hardware and software systems we have. Mm -hmm. um, but how would you look at applying that into healthcare? So actually, I think the healthcare one is a much simpler proposition mm -hmm. than the computational side of things. Because yeah. computation requires people to program the system to do you yeah. know, X or Y, Z task. The healthcare one is more straightforward because yeah. the fact that if we've gotten these systems to play Pong, and assuming that Pong is a cognitive task of sorts, yeah. we theoretically now have a functional essay for neurons. Mm -hmm. And this is really exciting because for the longest time, neuroscience was using spike trains, you know, the, the spiking yeah. activity of networks as a proxy for computation. Mm. Now, the thing that we have to realize and think about it is that, that an action potential is not necessarily a computation, but it's a message to be sent across the wire. Yeah. So, um, you know, one way to describe this would be, let's say you were in a very busy, noisy stadium. There's a lot of chatter going around, but there's not much information flowing. Yeah. Right? Because there are all these things happening at, the, at that point in time. Whereas if you could be in a lecture theater, very quiet, but one person delivering a lot of information, right? So, so what, we, what we've started to think about now is that if these things are playing Pong, right? And we've seen this with some of our data that showed mm. that uh, there was high performance of gameplay from some of the quieter chips perhaps we were not looking at the right place uh, or looking at the right measure for the computational side of things uh, or the, the cognition and functional aspects. So this is really exciting for us because 
once you have a functional assay for neurons, mm. you can start thinking about, uh, you know, looking at pathologies, right? Could you start CRISPRing in known uh, genetic mutations um, or taking samples from patients with known familial uh, diseases, like let's say, uh, you know, very, very severe temporal lobe epilepsies and so forth. Um, run them yeah. in these, you know, dish brain systems, these computing systems, get them play the game of Pong and see what the performance is like, and then test drugs on them and see how it affects a the condition. So in the case of say epilepsy, reducing the amount of spiking or the amount of yeah. activity, and then B, see the performance on the gameplay, the functional aspect of these neurons, right? Mm. Because what we've started to see here is that if you fix some of this epilepsy seizure-like activity, they start to learn how to play the game. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. If, you, if, you, if you're all over the place, you can't learn. But once you fix it, you get this learning effect back. But what we've also noticed is that depending on the drug that we use to fix the uh, epileptiform seizure activity, you get different responses in the gameplay performance. So, which, you know, is truly fascinating because it, it mimics what yeah. we know in the clinical setting where, um, you know, patients are particularly sensitive to the type and formulations of these drugs um, where they need to have two properties. A, they're efficacious, so they stop mm -hmm. the seizure, but B, have least amount of side effects like, yeah. you know, cognitive impairment, brain fog and, and mood disorders and so forth. Um, so I think this is particularly very exciting for us and for me particularly the fact that if we can do these things, right, can we start thinking about um, looking to build in vitro models of things like, say, dementia? Yeah. Right. If, and this is something that we're very excited to, you know, work with the pediatric dementia group, right? Because, you know, before they reached out to us, I actually didn't even know that was actually a thing called pediatric dementia, even though, you know, I'd gone through medical yeah. school and, and, and worked as a doctor. But it turns out there is actually a forgotten, very niche um, practice, uh, well, not niche practice, but a very niche population mm. of children with dementia-like um, uh, symptoms. And a lot of the times, these are like single-point mutations and are very well known. Hmm. Um, what we really would love to do is to actually grow neurons derived from these patients' um, you know, uh, genetic material uh, or the, the stem cells and use that as an in vitro model. If we can use that as an in vitro model and then start screening compounds that we've learned uh, and, and, and derived from yeah. AI and quantum systems, perhaps we could actually accelerate the pipeline of new uh, compounds for the treatment of diseases like dementia or Parkinson's and so forth. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. We talked earlier about how um, when, we, when we were developing the game of Go uh, and why we were able to use AI to essentially beat uh, the human players, it was um, being able to determine the result before the end comes, right? Yes. So, I think the interesting part here is by building out this in vitro model for um, neurons, what you could do is replace phase one and two 100%. or a supplement. Yeah. Correct. Because you can basically test safety and efficacy in one go. Yes. Um, prior to it ever entering a human. So yes. there we already know what the result could be. We know yep. what the sample size might need to be yep. in order to demonstrate safety and efficacy already. Bingo, 100%. Now that is, I, I think it's actually going to be really interesting with mm. new legislation that's come through. So yeah. Congress just approved the FDA Modernization Act where we're starting to look at phasing out animal trials uh, in favor of using human organoids, organoids. Human organoids mm. right? Um, and uh, you know, once that really becomes a thing, you can start thinking about drug discovery and drug development yeah. less from a PE model and more like a VC model, mm. which is what we should be doing, right? We should be, we should be testing many different compounds and then failing them at an earlier stage. Yeah. Fail fast, fail hard, move on, um, yeah. and, and, and don't sink too much investment into a drug that ultimately may fail. Yeah. So yeah, the earlier we can detect that you know, a, a particular compound is going to fail, the better it is for the industry because we spend less money and resources on something that will never see the light of day. 
Yeah, and then the other concept that you were talking about with this pediatric dementia case, mm. um, which I find very interesting, is the concept of precision medicine for psychiatric and central nervous system diseases. Yes. Um, because at the moment, um, we've noticed that a lot of medications within central nervous system disorders don't work that well for yeah. um, everyone, right? Yeah. So um, we get a lot of variation in response, and I think um, that is because uh, human brains are so complex. Like yes. there's not one that is identical to another. Yeah. So by being able to grow um, neuronal models of every single individual who mm. could be taking a drug, yes. um, you could basically test an array of medications on these patients to say, hey, I know that this 99% mm. um, accuracy is good for you specifically. Yes, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also important to realize that this is still also a really great research tool. Yeah. Right? Because of the fact that the way I, th I think about it is that all our antidepressants, all our psych yeah. uh, antipsychotics and so forth, is essentially like having a moving target you yeah. know, around in a big space and all you have is a shotgun. You're shooting and hopefully that one of the yeah. targets hits, right? And we know for a fact that all these drugs, these antidepressants are extremely dirty. There's lots of mm. side effects because there are so many yeah. uh, neurotransmitter receptors that they target. For instance, there's all the ser serotonin. They also target, you know, a bit of dopaminergic and so forth, right? There's no really specific, like, targeted therapy. Yeah. Unlike, let's say, monoclonal antibodies, right? Where you can custom design a particular uh, antibody to just, you know, have a lock and key fit with yeah. a particular, like, say... Uh, cancer marker or something like that we don't have that in the brain but mm. wouldn't it be so great if we did and we could tailor even say maybe monoclonal antibodies for the depression for the treatment of depression or, yeah. or psych psychiatric conditions right I think that would be such a game changer but we what we really need for that is actually a simpler system like yeah whole brains are complicated very complicated beasts um, and and I and I hope that our system that we're building gives us a simpler platform to start experimenting with this before we scale it up to whole brain effects. Yeah, and that, that was one point that I was going to make, is that maybe, maybe like your system would be really good at identifying whether we could create like one drug target yes. or map kind of yeah. thing. But when we, when we talk about like dirty drugs in CNS, yes. the problem is functional connectivity, right? 100%. The, the problem is that you don't know the downstream effects and the, yes. the effects that it has on different systems and how they interact yeah. with one another. Yeah. And that is something that right now I don't believe you can solve. But no, I don't know how don't. you're yeah. planning on doing that. So I think there is a way, which is, you know, scaling it up, growing more complex organoids, but then you need yeah. to have the technology for that. And that's still, you know, in the lab being developed and, and, and so to speak. What is a simpler way of doing it? You could potentially think about microfluidic systems, okay. right? Growing artificial functional units, trying to get them to wire up in a very simpler, but mm. smaller scale. Um, you know, for instance, like not every drug is going to be useful with our system. We've tested things like psilocybin with no mm -hmm. effect. And yeah. we were scratching our heads, why wouldn't there be effect? But it makes sense, it's right? It's a functional connectivity effect. Exactly. Yeah. And if our system is a complete monolayer, there are no functional components. Mm. It's one whole thing. So potentially the future may be using things like uh, uh, microfluidic channels, right? So you yeah. can actually say, you know, here's a cluster. They will develop specifically on their own. We will stimulate them so that they have yeah. a completely different function from another one have them sort of form external com uh, bundle connections and then from there, you know, try to see if dousing them with that, those functional connectivity drugs like, you know, psilocybin and so forth will have an effect. But as for it right now, you know, we don't, we don't see that uh, in our system. But if that's the case, how would you approach, um, you know, even dementia drugs right now if you can't demonstrate, you know, Functional so, connectivity. So um, I think the thing is, like for say dementia, right? Perhaps one of the ways to do it is to is to see whether there is the ability for, let's just use the Pong game for instance, using Pong as a way of con uh, testing for concentration or mm. the ability to track the ball, right? Uh, we know for a fact that our system, if you actually give it enough um, um, ethanol and you titrate it up, will actually get worse at playing the game. Oh gosh, yeah. yeah. As a form of cognitive impairment. Uh -huh. So perhaps using, for say, dementia, a simpler thing, like let's say cognitive impairment, yeah. we could start looking at that from, from that perspective. 
Having said that, psilocybin is more of a conscious, there is a bit of cognitive impairment, but it's more about, you know, from what I've heard, I've never done it, the, it's a differential like experience. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a conscious, it, it affects the consciousness um, aspect of, of the brain. Yeah. Now, I don't think, and I hope not, that none of our dish brain systems are conscious. So if <laughs> there is no conscious component to it, Oh, then, gosh. then you know, testing a drug like psilocybin yeah. may not have any effect. Interesting. Um, I mean, I think building consciousness of out of your system could be a, a whole separate conversation. Yeah, it's a very big, yeah. you know, bioethical question, right? Mm. Like, you know, is it is it bad, unethical to create a conscious system? Mm. Um, and and you know, I, I personally think it's it's not. Yeah. For now, a good idea to make a conscious system, because the re you need to have a reason why. Because uh, you will never get ethics approval for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you and what you need is is a yeah. rationale. For instance, mm -hmm. let's just say we we know you know we've done all these studies that there yeah. is a conscious component to the solving of dementia. Mm -hmm. Then you could potentially argue and say we do need to create a conscious system. Yeah. in order to get to the next phase to create a drug that alleviates mm. all the suffering. So I think until we have a good enough reason, we shouldn't be building these things yeah. in, that, in that way. Um, and so you are on your second startup. Yes. Um, and you, you've been in the startup journey for over 10 years now. Yes. Um, so tell far me, too long. <laughs> far too long. Um, can you give some advice um, to healthcare founders Founders in life science, what is the number one thing to do when building a healthcare startup? Can you give us a story, an example of how you came to that? Huh, in a healthcare startup, um, it's really, really hard. And um, <laughs> yeah. particularly if you're a US based healthcare startup, um, the reason why is because you, you have your three, uh, what do they call it? Your um, three-sided marketplace, right? You got your patient, your pay providers, three P's, and your your payers, right? Yeah. Um, you potentially might actually be. Uh, it might be easier if your payer was also your provider. Sorry, your mm. payer was also your patient, or your payer was like the provider. So single payer healthcare systems are particularly in, more interesting, I think, from from that perspective. Um, but having said that, I mean, there is a lot of inefficiencies in mm. the system. Um, and and some, of the, some of the best ideas may not necessarily be the most groundbreaking things, yeah. but just trying to fix these inefficiencies could lead to a really positive outcome. Um, so, you know, any founders out there, you don't have to go create DishBrain or anything like that to solve the healthcare problem. It could just simply be a SaaS product that yeah. helps organize information, right? Because we're like healthcare is so far back the curve when it comes to, yeah. to technology that what you think today may not be very modern, might actually be very useful. So don't need to do LLMs, you don't need to do any of this like, you know, generative AI stuff to actually make a dent. So do basically start with the problem. Yes. Yeah. I think there are lots of lots of problems in, in healthcare. Yeah. And the best way to learn about that is to either be a healthcare provider yourself because you see all of it or yeah. shadow somebody. Now, I, I did a, a, a research fellowship at uh, Hopkins um, in informatics and my preceptor used to give a really good yeah. analogy. He used to say there are three types of people in the world. There are people above the line, in this case doctors and nurses who know all the problems but don't have any solutions to solve for them. Mm. And then the people below the line, they're the engineers who know all the solutions but don't know the problems to apply mm. them to. What you need to have are the implementations, the, the interface between the, the problem and, the and solutions. solutions. And I, I think like this, is, this is where founders come in, right? We yeah. see a problem, right? We know how to solve it, and we put those two and two together. Yeah. Right? Because Be for instance, interface. Exactly. Yeah. And it's actually a lot about communication. It's about language. So mm. for instance, let's say if I was a, if I was a doctor or a nurse, the, when someone says the word database, the first thing that pops in their mind is in MySQL or MongoDB. It's PubMed, mm. right? Or Medscape or yeah. UpToDate or something like that. You, the inverse, you tell a, a, a software engineer database, the first thing they think about is PostgreSQL, MySQL, <laughs> and so forth, right? 
So yeah. when you, the, the way you identify someone who's that interface is when you say database and the next question they say is, what's your context, mm. right? And I think this is where founders are really important at providing that glue and asking what is the context that you're talking about and having uh, your, and you know, we see this in every, every vertical as well, where yeah. you have um, um, engineers, right? Uh, having things, you know, you have your engineering, you have product manager, which is essentially the interface and your customers. But, you know, when you're starting out the journey, the, num the, the, the first PM in any, any company is always the founder. Mm. So having that, that interface, I think, is really crucial. And what's the number one thing not to do? And can you give a story and example of how you learn not to do that? <laughs> not to do? That's a really hard one. Um, and it's probably a lot. There's a lot, there's a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, um, okay, this is gonna sound very counterintuitive, but don't raise more than you need. Mm. Um, it is quite difficult. If you have raised too much, um, we did that with our last startup. Yeah. And you, you've kind of cornered yourself and you don't have anywhere to go. Um, and it's hard to then close up and, and return the money your yeah. investors, uh, you're also at a massive disadvantage going to the next phase because you've set the barrier, the bar so high. Um, you know, we've seen this as well with yeah. all these startups post 2021, 22. They died. Yeah, zero interest rate, like policy hikes, mm. um, where it became so difficult to raise funding. Um, so always, always raise a little bit more than what you what you sh you know need, but don't do it excessively. Yeah, in a sense. Figure out what you can do in a lean methodology, what you can yeah. get away with, what you can, uh, what do they say, beg, borrow, or steal? Yeah. Do that in the early stages, be resourceful. But it's so easy to say that, right? And then yeah. when you're actually in the boat yeah. and you've been struggling for so long and someone's like, here's a ton of money. Yep. Like there is not like many people who would just be like, I'm not gonna take that. Oh, no, certainly. I mean, you would mm -hmm. take it, but also be, cognizant as mm. well of the reasons why yeah right? and sometimes potentially the best investors may not be the ones that give you the most amount of money yeah right? because there is a trap of potentially you know taking more money than you need get you getting you addicted to it so <laughs> that you have to raise around earlier yeah. yeah then you then you really need to yeah. get pressured into it you know, and, and the problem as well is don't fall into the trope of what a startup looks like. Every startup is different. Mm. Everyone's trying to have the nice office with the foosball table and whatever. And the investors are happy because they see that, you know, and it looks like all the other, you know, cool startups. I, I think from your own culture, from your values, right? So, for instance, yeah. at Quartical Labs, the value I enshrine in the company is everyone is a scientist first and foremost. Mm, right? I like that. You know, you could be in marketing, you could be in operations you're still a scientist, Yeah. right? Don't overhype anything. Uh, use be, data. Use data, mm. um, you know, uh, be, be, yeah. And uh, always seek feedback right? yeah. and get peer review inter internally as well, right? Like your ideas need to be validated. Um, so yeah. I think, you know, that, that, that is just, you know, our culture, but other companies may have, you know, different cultures that they form. Um, and I think, you know, but, you know, one universal uh, thing that we should all have is this mentality of being lean, getting as much, um, as much yeah. uh, value that we can with the least amount of input. Uh, because at the end of the day, if you think about it, the only valuation that matters is your exit valuation. Interesting. Right. Okay. It's everything else is pure ego. Um, yeah. The you know if you become too expensive, it's very hard to exit. Yeah. So I would I would caution the feel good feeling of a very high valuation because that may it is a high, huh? It is a very it's a high. Yeah. People congratulate you. You feel good. Your parents think you're doing really well. But the problem is it makes it harder to get to the exit mm. unless you're on a rocket ship, right? And you know if you are, kudos to you. Um, I, I think, you know, it's better to play it conservatively and safely. Um, you know, don't, don't take the, the overly alluring uh, check size as, yeah. as, you know, that. Find people who, who, who believe in your journey, who can provide sort of, um, you know, value add and support. Yeah.
I think that's interesting. Like the difference between raising at a hundred mil valuation and having a hundred mil. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Right. Because all of this is paper. Yeah. 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 And a lot of the times we, we, um, we fall in the trap as founders uh, yeah. for very high valuations without realizing there are all these things like ratchet clauses, three times, four times liquidation preferences yeah. that get thrown in by the investors who say, fine, you want that high valuation, you can have it, but I'm going to take three times when I, when I get my money back. Yeah. Yeah. I just have one last question for you. Yep. Um, so what is the number one impact you want to leave on the world today? With yes. Cortical Labs. So the impact that I'd love to leave with Cortical Labs is I would love to see a tool that founders of the next generation can use to build great startups with that will solve lots of problems. Um, this is essentially, if you think about it, what Intel did, what Nvidia did by building the platform and the hardware that has enabled so much that we see today. Cortical Labs is a deep tech startup uh, building biological computers. The way we do that is by growing uh, neurons, brain cells, from uh, human adult induced prepotent stem cells onto silicon chips, uh, reading the activity of the chips, uh, sorry, of the neurons on the chip, and providing a stimulus in the game world, like the video game Pong, to show that you can do intelligence tasks or computation. Now, I bought along uh, a prototype device of the CL1, the biological computer. What we have here is an artificial life support system, the perfusion circuit. It is a dual loop uh, system with an internal loop that keeps the fluid running um, internally. So we have inlets and outlets. Neurons sit inside here. These are feeding reservoirs. These are filtration systems, so like kidneys that they will trans allow diffusion of nutrients and waste through a semi-permeable membrane. These are gas exchange systems that feed gas through the system to balance out pH. And there's a heating element underneath that keeps the cells at a toasty 37 degrees Celsius. So in addition to the Health Creators podcast, you'll also find everything you need on healthcreators.co. That includes our vendor selection and CRO databases, um, conference selector tool, and also investors you should be talking to. When you log into healthcreators.co, you'll also have direct access to Nurut for clinical development and a community of founders building in healthcare.